My name is Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. Vibebio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. Collectively, we have the skills, we have the technology, we have the passion. We now need the community catalyst to bring it all together. That's Vibe. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to actually develop them. The Vibecast is our weekly informational podcast as we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development with some of the dynamic people that make up the Vibe community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. Our guest today is Gina Zanik co-founder of the Rare and Undiagnosed Network. I'll let her introduce herself. She has a presentation as well. So looking forward to this conversation. Gina, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Ray. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I, again, I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Rare and Undiagnosed Network. I am an undiagnosed patient. I have three children, Ava, Oscar, and Lucy, that are all undiagnosed as well. And we're here today to talk about Undiagnosed Day coming up on April 29th. A little bit of all the adventures we've had on our diagnostic odyssey and really excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Gina, why don't you tell the audience where you're calling us from as well? I'm calling you from Salt Lake City and Utah. We've been here since 2013. Amazing. So now why don't we get into the presentation and begin learning more about what you've been working on. Great. Excited to share. So on April 29th, it's Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day, short tag, hashtag Undiagnosed Day. And Undiagnosed Day is to celebrate those living with an undiagnosed disease and their families. And again, we've lost so many recently, so it's also to honor the ones that we have lost, both children and adults. We also want to raise awareness with the general public, you know, policymakers, public authorities, researchers, anyone that is interested in undiagnosed diseases. It's imperative to talk about genomics and the importance of genomics for undiagnosed disease patients. So for Utah, we actually had Governor Spencer Cock declare April 29th as Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day. I'm pretty sure that we are the only state in the United States this year that has a declaration for Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day. And we are honored that uh, Governor Spencer Cox, who has ties to the rare disease community, and he also did the declaration for Rare Disease Day for us as well on February 28th. So very excited that the governor is aware of our work and the importance of it in Utah. So also uh, my daughter, Ava, my oldest, created the awareness ribbon that you see on the slide. But if you're listening, it's the ribbon similar to the rare disease community, the black and white stripes, but we added in baby blue and baby pink we felt representing baby boys and baby girls. And so I, I think she was only, well, 2016. So she was pretty young when she designed it and our marketing team took it to the next level. So we're very proud of the, the undiagnosed awareness ribbon. Yeah, you next must slide. be very proud that you were able to yeah. accomplish this. It must've been a lot of work. And, you know, this isn't the first year that you celebrated, right? Um, no, correct. When you started celebrating or when you tried to bring awareness originally? Yes. Yeah, so there's m multiple days that internationally um, 
nonprofits and, and companies raise awareness for the undiagnosed community. We chose Undiagnosed Day as April 29th just to keep the day the same every year. Some people do the last Friday. I just wanted to keep it one day every year, April 29th. So we started in 2016 and we started small, but by I think the next year, we had people in Spain and France, all over the world, lighting up buildings for the undiagnosed day. And they do that also for rare disease day, but to see it become not just local, national, internationally known, has been really spectacular. We will be working with the UDNI this year on April 29th. My daughter, Ava, at 15, will be a part of their presentation. That'll be a world international event. So she'll speak on that, about her journey as undiagnosed. So there's a lot going on, um, not a lot in person still. This is such a high risk group of you know, patients. Um, so we kind of are still keeping to the social media level, but hopefully next year we'll have something in person. That's awesome. And maybe for some people who might not be familiar with this day, or um, what it means to be undiagnosed. Can you sort of explain to the community, you know, what what is classified as someone to be, what classifies someone to be undiagnosed? Yes, the UDN, Undiagnosed Disease Network, and the NIH, UDNI, all have really wonderful definitions of it. As, as a patient, it's about going to multiple specialists and they can't find the root cause. So most of these diagnostic journeys, which we'll get into later, it takes five to eight years possibly to get a diagnosis. And one of the things that we, at the, at the goal of Undiagnosed Day, that we started really championing in 2016 is we are undiagnosed, internationally diagnosed as undiagnosed. So that is our diagnosis. And we wanted people to respect that as part of our journey. We live in that world of the unknown for now and probably for a long time. So it is our diagnosis and that's very important for people to see, but on a, on a clinical level, it's seeing multiple specialists without finding a root cause. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yes. So this is my three children. That picture was taken, um, Ava, Oscar and Lucy in 2015. Um, so a while ago by Susan Atwater. Um, so run really, I think this is where you want me to kind of just talk about run and um, so the history think of run. Yeah, I think explaining sort of like when you first started RUN and then sort of what has it, it developed into, um, I think that would be interesting for people and like how yeah. many partners you have and things like that. Sorry. Great. So the Rare and Undiagnosed Network was formed in the summer of 2014. I think we became official in November of 2014. And it came out of me really screaming to the world for help for my children. And um, at the time we were looking for whole genome sequencing, exome sequencing, and couldn't get it covered by insurance. So my original mission of, of RUN was really wanting whole genome sequencing to be covered by insurance companies. It's definitely evolved into raising awareness about the importance of genomics, creating community and educational series, and just bringing awareness for undiagnosed and rare diseases. But I started with um, Reed, Dr. Reed Robinson of Two Genomics at the time. And I found him by emailing, calling all around the country for someone to listen. And I was referred to him because he happened to be really close to me in Salt Lake City. So we met and we were, I remember specifically, we said, well, we'll just, the rare network. And I said, well, what about the undiagnosed community? He goes, well, rare undiagnosed network run. And it came so innocently in that conversation, but the power behind those words 
and where it's come now, it, it took a life of its own. Yeah, absolutely. Many people are familiar with the idea of rare diseases, right? You have, I think it's classified as any disease with less than 200 people that have been diagnosed with it. Um, but undiagnosed is another big problem. And that's what you're trying to bring awareness to. And I think that's really important. Um, and you also have people that may be diagnosed incorrectly. So they're actually not diagnosed with the disease they have. They're incorrectly diagnosed with something else causing issues such as maybe they're, they're taking medications that are uh, have side effects where and it's not really helping them treat their symptoms too so there's a lot to this so i appreciate you having the the courage to you know start developing it and uh yeah let's, let's yeah and also on. yeah and also not to interrupt you but also to add that is absolutely true the misdiagnosis the n of one is it's a huge community and also, you can look at undiagnosed and rare diseases, but you can also look at undiagnosed in the general public. So undiagnosed, misdiagnosed in general health is a main issue. And another part to mention is also you can have an umbrella diagnosis, but yet not know the root cause and be under an, un an umbrella diagnosis. So where you could take it one more step with, with genetic sequencing and really find the root cause. And one of those examples, I think of a friend of mine, Annette Mon, that lived in epilepsy, she was ran the nonprofit for epilepsy, did genetic testing and found K, KGB, not KDG, KGB was the root cause. And he was the first patient in the country and she went on that. So it's interesting to me how big this, this issue, this concern, this community is when, when you look at all the different facets and avenues that you could explore. How many members do you have uh, as part of the network now? I just think it's hard to put a number on it because okay. I look I look at it's again, we work with patients, the caregivers, physicians, researchers, biotech, pharmaceutical companies, and educational um, you know, uh, sorry, schools. I mean, it's it's such a large community. I think on a day-to-day -day in Utah, I mean, we have a huge um, wonderful community. I work with Mark Christensen of Angel Hands Foundation, who also does a lot of here in Salt Lake City, but on a national, international level, it's hard to put a number on it because it's, you know, it's ebb and flow too. Some of them stay in or very active. Some come in, leave. So um, it's hard to put a number on it, but it's a pretty huge network. So what lessons have you learned from Run? So again, the number one lesson that I've learned with Run is to shorten the diagnostic odyssey. And I when you go around the country and you go to conferences, it's something that everyone is trying to do and to improve. For me, we've gone on 14 years. I've mentioned that the average is five to eight, but it's it's years of children's childhood, right? It's it's as young adults maybe not able to have a family or it's not being able to provide for their families as an adult. So how do we shorten that diagnostic odyssey? And that's the number one lesson that I've learned. And again, I love to be an advocate but I'm looking for the action, always wanting to work on that diagnostic odyssey. One thing I want to say here as well is you are saying it's a diagnostic odyssey. So a lot of people have heard of the patient journey, maybe diagnostic journey. But now that I'm thinking about it, journey sort of, um, when you think about that, it sounds like something that is relatively, it's long, but not too long, maybe a week or a couple of weeks or a few months. So when you talk about an odyssey, it's like a long, long journey. And that's um, first I've seen it. So it's really cool that you're, you know, yeah, we're in it yeah. <laughs> 14 years. And when someone explained it to me too, it's, it's a powerful two words that explain, try to explain the journey. 
and it's tough. I, I'm sure you're still on the Odyssey, right? In some ways. Yes. Um, and can you share a little bit about, you know, some of the progress maybe uh, that's been that you've seen? So yeah, I, really there hasn't. And I think that that's been the aha moment for my parents. We started when Ava was three and, and we were in the arachnoid cyst area. Then we went on to the autonomic journey with we realized at five, she had it at three, Oscar did, 18 months, Lucy did. And then we went on a, a horrific journey with Ava when she hit her head and had four cranial brain surgeries and became shunt dependent um, over her sixth birthday. Uh, so we spent about five, six weeks in the hospital. So, I mean, we've been to the edge of where, you know, that whole, a lot of parents that have been there where no one's listening, you're going to the ER over and over and over again, they send you home. This time, my husband and I refused to leave. She started to have papilledema, which means she was starting to go blind. And it ended up that her spinal pressure was at 55 and it should have been about 18. She had emergency external drain put in, which did not work, a second external drain, which did not work, and assist fenestration, which did not work. And She's shunt dependent. So when she was six, that was a terrifying where you never want another mom or family to go through what we did. And that's also what came, my run started is to get that word out of there. Listen to your gut as a parent. Listen to, you know, if you can't have a doctor listening to you, find another team. Don't just accept that everything's fine or it's in your head or they're going to be okay. You have to fight for yourself and you have to fight for your child. And that's a big lesson also with RUN. But we went on that then autonomic genetic testing for years. We're in computers all over the country. And so that's the positive of being able to be proactive and, you know, have the access. We've had a lot more access than other families, but continually every day to wake up and say, what am I going to do today to keep fighting for myself and my children? Wow. I can only imagine that. Um, I'm sorry that you had a, you know, go through all of that and your children as well and your entire family, really. Um, yes. Collaboration and collaboration and collaboration. Tell me more about that. Well, it's the key to everything. And it's at the, the foundation of what RUN is. I mean, RUN is building those that network by building collaborations. And there's not one person on this planet I won't listen to. I want to hear everyone's thoughts in there. I, you know, pick their brains and, and talk and have these, you know, evolving conversations about rare and undiagnosed diseases. And, you know, so far there's so many in the rare space, the rare space, global genes, NORD, every, every, every day, sorry, pause, our ELA. And there's so many different ones that we work with. And in the undiagnosed space, there hasn't been a lot. There are now the UDN, UDNI, there just was a UDNF formed. So there's all these different people out there trying to help for the community. Why wouldn't you all work together? I mean, there's the power in the numbers. And my, as my husband would say, the brain trust, right? The more you bring in, the more you have these, even working with recursion pharmaceuticals and all of these, you know, on the other side, biotech pharmaceutical companies listening, having a seat at the table and all talking is the only way to do it. It's to bring those down those silos that everyone, you know, is stuck in even within different hospital systems, they have silos, right? There's silos everywhere. And how do you break those silos down and collaborate? That's true. Let, let's These hear more hard... about, let's hear more about the diagnostic odyssey that you and your family had to go through. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier about the diagnostic odyssey and these are the hard pictures because you see that first picture when you met my kids, it's invisible, right? I always say they look cute and they're, they're high functioning and pretty bright, but their bodies do not work. 
So these are the, the real hard facts of what their childhood looked like. Every week we were somewhere and they would be terrified to go into the car. And as a parent, it was devastating to put them through that. But I was, you know, we're all trying to help them so they could have a better life. And thankfully, I continue to do that with Ava or she wouldn't, she most definitely would be blind and most likely pass on. And so fighting for them, and again, I'll go in detail about an autonomic, um, what an autonomic neuropathy, a dysautonomic um, dysfunction is, and it's everything that you do naturally. So it's breathing motility. Yeah, so these are definitely very powerful images, uh, and I can't imagine how many times you were in a hospital and you didn't take photos, right? There must have been many. So this is just a small snippet of the last, you know, almost two decades of your life, um, 16 years or so. So thanks for sharing this with the community. I think it's powerful for people to see this, especially other families who have children who might have undiagnosed an undiagnosed disease. So it kind of makes people not feel alone because I'm sure, especially in the beginning, you, you and your family felt alone in some cases. And this sort of helped, this helps others be more comfortable asking those questions, you know, when the doctor says, oh, we, there's nothing we can do for you. Well, and I think do documentation. I mean, you do need the photos. Every Still today, I show those photos of Ava's hands. I mean, I, you have, and it's hurtful to do it, but it's to, to journal. Everything is hard. It's really hard, but you have to somehow have that information because you're going to have to say it, unfortunately, over and over and over again. So the photos do really help a lot because as we all know, not every time when we are in that doctor's office, are they going to see what we see at home? So the documentation and photos and journals really help. So this slide, we, you asked about major challenges for undiagnosed. For our family, it's the undiagnosed autonomic neuropathy. So that's everything on a cellular level. It's every minute of every day. And my, my oldest, Ava, speaks publicly as well. And she wrote this slide recently, and she just says it's physical and emotional. And the physical parts of the autonomic nervous system is everything. It's breathing, as it says, breathing, heart rate, temperature control, your skin, your digestive system, your circulatory system, and your immune systems. And so for that, my kids have been sick since August every, continuously. Um, the temperature controls are very severe. So I think when you're sitting in a room and you look at my children or you look at me, you can't see what's wrong with us. So the chronic, the invisible, and the undiagnosed disease process is every, like I said, it's on a cellular level. It's every minute of every day. And my daughter really is at, at turning 16 is really now dealing with the emotional side of everything because it's the constant fatigue, which, you know, for anyone would exhaust you. And then chronic illness, there is a lot of the emotional, the depression, the anxiety, and an overwhelming desperation. And I think recently Ava had a, a, a complex migraine and felt like she was having a stroke and was dying. And she wanted to give up. She's like, this is my life. So trying to work with young children, now I'm working with the teenagers, trying to get them to be young adults and on their own. It's, it is exhausting, but the fight in us, we have to per persevere. And that's our message to everyone is just talk to people. You just share your journey. We're always here to listen. Run is always open to sharing other people's journeys because you have to, you can't sit and be alone, as you know, and we've mentioned. That's amazing. And it takes a lot of strength to be able to do that continuously day in, day out. Um, so really kudos to you and your family for continuing to be strong, not just for yourselves, but really for the 
wider community, which uh, which is also dealing with undiagnosed disease. So thank you for sharing this. So I understand you're also working with the Utah Jazz and the NBA to also promote awareness about RUN. So do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, I happen to have a little bit of an in as I'm married to the general manager of the Utah Jazz, Justin Zanuck. But when we came here in 2013, I was at a game and there was a little boy with cancer that had a pregame experience. And I looked at Justin and I said, that's so important. I was crying as everybody was because he's out there shooting hoops and all that and, and you know, bringing awareness to cancer and the need for, for funding and everything, as we all know, for cancer. But I said, what if we had some of the rare and undiagnosed children on the court? And he said, well, let me talk to Gail Miller at the time was the owner. And she, hands down, no hesitation, uh, said, bring the kids on the court. So we've had, first year was 2015. And the first year, I mean, it didn't even look like that. I think we had like three kids. And the second year, we had more. By the last year, we had all the siblings, all the parents. I mean, almost 100 people on the court for the national anthem. And for the ones that couldn't walk, or, you know, their siblings would push their wheelchairs. For the ones that had siblings that had passed away, that held their photos. And I still cry when I think about it because it's such a blessed opportunity. And even Bertrand Might, who has passed on, when we took him to his first NBA game, he's nonverbal. You know, his face lit up and you could just see that he was, you know, seeing the lights and hearing the crowds. And it was a moment in time that I'll always cherish. And so giving that to other families, it's something that has just been wonderful. It's probably my favorite thing one of my favorite things because it's on such a high level and it's such an, you know, wonderful experience. And since 2015, over seven NBA teams have participated, but when the pandemic hit, obviously we're such a high risk group. Um, we kind of put a, a hold on it and we talked about it this year, but my kids have been sick since August continuously. So we just didn't feel it was quite ready to return, but we hopeful next year. Wow. Well, first of all, sorry to hear that your kids are not are feeling sick now. Um, but one thing I want to say is this must be such an amazing experience for these kids. Like to get this amount, to get this amount of attention, not in the hospital must be like awesome for them. And like a very great memorable experience. So thank you and your yeah. husband for, you know, working to set that all up. It's pretty spectacular. And then when you're there, you just can't believe it's happening. So, and again, these kids have all grown up together. They've known each other since 2015 and it's 2023. So, I mean, all these, a lot of, unfortunately, there's quite a few that have passed on, but also the ones that haven't are still family and the, the siblings of them are still like family. It's a really wonderful group here in Utah. That's great. Really great to hear. And that kind of speaks again to the importance of family and community and being able to support each other, especially when things are challenging. So do you want to talk to us a little bit more about, you know, the importance of family and community? Yeah. So again, it's hard to put a number on what the run, you know, where we've touched and, and how many we've touched, but you can see just from Run's experience, we, you know, the patients, the caregivers, but all of the rare and undiagnosed stakeholders in Utah, nationally, internationally, are a part of the network. And it's just unbelievable to see, you know, everyone come together with the same goal, push forward for the undiagnosed community, the rare community. This, you know, this community is larger than anyone really realizes, except the people that are, you know, in it you know, 24 seven. So the more we can say that there's physicians, there's, as you know, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, 
you know, everyone is trying to push forward for the rare and undiagnosed community. So I, I just felt that slide represents from the, the patients to the caregivers to all of the rare disease stakeholders that are part of the community. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm sure the physicians and, you know, healthcare providers that are experiencing or working with patients who are undiagnosed, are there any sort of lessons learned for them that maybe you can share with our audience as well? Because I'm sure some doctors must have been, you know, surprised or bewildered about something or a patient or something, any, any kind of learnings that they can learn from? Well, one of them is, I first learned about when I started run there, we wanted this whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing and, and the uh, geneticist at the time said, I can't go out there and advocate for families. I just, it doesn't work for in, in the setting within the hospital for me to go out and advocate. You as a parent patient can go out there and advocate for this. And it was an aha moment going, he taught me that I have to be the voice for them to get this covered for insurance so they can do the work. And that's a great example when the physicians, as we know, a lot, of, a lot of times they're doing that, hey, we'd love to do this, but this is the role of a patient advocate. Can you help us with the clinical trials, with everything we need to partner, which we'll talk about too, coming at. But I think the voice that, or the physicians are giving the patients a voice and encouraging them to go out there and raise awareness. Because as a mom, you really don't know what to do because you listen to your doctor for the advice. So when they're putting that into your hands, I think it's a great, more physicians shouldn't be afraid to tell the parent, hey, we need your help. We need this to be out in public. You should call your media. You should get this story in the paper. You know, all of these things, you know, we're a team. And I think that's the change from being a patient and your, my father was a physician and Back in the day, it was, you know, the doctor, you listened and you probably didn't interrupt. And now it's evolved, at least in, in our family, my patient, my physicians are my friends and they've been with me for a long time. I look to them for guidance, but they also look to me for guidance. Hey, what, what can we do to push forward? The other wonderful story that has stuck with me over the years is, you know, with HIPAA or in all those laws of HIPAA, of course, but there's also this if the patient's putting it out there, it can get out there. There isn't the HIPAA because we've put it out there. And there's a lot of researchers that want to work directly with the patients and they can't unless you get connected and they take that wall away. So there was the ones that were doing our sequencing in Wisconsin. They, we had that relationship and we met and I mean, very much a blessed opportunity. Not all families have that, but they actually put the children's photographs up on the sequencing machines to make it personal instead of a white folder. So I, I think that's what bringing those walls down all, it, it comes from sharing from a patient perspective and letting your story out there. That's awesome. Can you talk to us more about the um, work you did to make sure that people's genomes were sequenced, whole exome genome sequencing you're saying? And like, um, yeah, just more details on that. I think would be fantastic. Yeah, I think when we were, it was 2012 is when we started in Wisconsin um, with the genetic um, team. And which genetic that team? Point, like, uh, gosh, um, not not names, but is no, it part of a oh, hospital okay. system? Or? Yes. So okay. I was going to say Gunter Gunter Sarah, but yes, it was uh, medical Wisconsin medical hospital medical college of Wisconsin. Sorry, uh, pause. It was with the medical. College of Wisconsin and also Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. So they were working together. And so 
we were with the Children's Hospital at the time, so Children's Hospital Wisconsin, and they were able to, after fighting it over and over and over, doing peer reviews, they were able to get the exome, but they were not going to be able to get the genome done. And at that time in 2012, it was going to be, I think it was going to be 30,000 per the five, so yeah, 150,000 for our family. So that odds price has come way, way down. But oh. that's when we were, yeah. So, I mean, we, it wasn't going to be, and, and it was, everyone was telling us that that's what we needed to, to do to find an answer. Unfortunately, we're so complex that it, it's not, the science isn't there for us now. It will be hopefully in the near future, although they say 25 plus years. But there's so many other things now in the world of genomics that, you, that is being covered by insurance. And I think this might come up um, also, um, I think it comes up, so I'll pause, but um, there are so many more institutions with undiagnosed programs. And in, tw in 2012, there really wasn't. The NIH had one, but it was very hard to access. And there, now, I, I mean, there's so many undiagnosed programs within institutions. So that we've come a long way. Yeah, and genetic sequencing as a technology has improved so much too. And like you mentioned, the costs have gone down. So that I, that makes sense. Back in 2012 or before that, not as easy to find, you know, providers to run sequencing for your for your uh, samples. Now you can get a full genome exome sequencing for well, definitely like less than a thousand bucks per person. Yes, you know? it's come a long way, and it's and it's changing every day. I mean, it's all it's, it's so yes, we were back in the old days. It's come a long way since then. Well, that's good. That's some positive. Yes. So let's talk about some of Run's accomplishments so far. So this, this is year. just, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, so far, this is just this year. So I think you're asking uh, in the question about the roadmap. And I'm, I was like, we've actually done quite a lot already and really proud of that. So one of the things that I am honored to mention is that I'm the co-chair of the Rare Disease Advocate. Sorry, pause. One of the things I'm really proud about is that I'm the co-chair of the Rare Disease Advisory Council, the RDAC. And we created a policy guide and I presented it to the Utah Life Science Innovation Caucus. So that's been really exciting. Um, there's, there's probably now about 23 RDACs across the country, but Utah, um, we are housed in the Department of Health and um, been working together. There are 17 members. And so our policy guide, we had an introductory level to our legislatures and to, have, to our legislature. And um, so it was really an honor to work on the policy guide. And we are still in the infancy of the RDAC and looking forward to what it'll come over the next few years. That's amazing. Yeah. And again, it, congratulations on all the accomplishments so far. It's really cool. Yeah. And the governor declared Rare Disease Day on February 28th, as I mentioned previously. And we had a wonderful Rare Disease Day event at Recursion Pharmaceuticals Worldwide headquarters. The CEO is Chris Gibson, who's a dear friend. And what I was proud about that event is we had wonderful speakers, um, but the panel and the core of the speakers were these four um, here, Ethan Bruns, my daughter, Ava Zanig, Rachel Wasden, and Kingston Atwater. And Ethan is now studying at the University of Utah because he's a success story. He has a treatment and is studying to be a geneticist. So he's kind of the wonderful story for all of us to you know, pray for. And then um, Rachel spoke and she's an undiagnosed patient that is a newlywed and trying to you know, ma maneuver life as an adult. And the struggles are real. 
and then um, my daughter Ava um, spoke and she there's two things that Ava said that brought the house down and one is imagine if you only have three years of being healthy and it's the first three years of your life and you don't remember them because you were too young and the second Powerful. one Powerful. Yeah, yeah my husband didn't have a dry I mean there wasn't a dry in the room by the end of these four speaking and the other one that stuck with me is imagine being five years old and you're told that you're undiagnosed and that's all you will be for the rest of your life. You will never have an answer for the root cause and they'll treat your symptoms. At five years old, as she said, a literal child, and you hear that. And here she is turning 16 in June and all we can do is treat her symptoms. So that's a tough message. And Kingston, sweet Kingston, he brought the house down and his sister, um, Asia Atwater, um, seasoning Clint's daughter, passed away in August, and um, Kingston's 14, and shared what it's like to have the honor of living with a rare disease sibling, and how hard the loss is. So I was just so moved by the power of the next generation, and passing that torch, us moms sat in the audience and watched them, and mom, mothers and fathers sat in the audience and watched them, and just look, I mean, the power of these next generation that live this and what they can do with what you know path they've had already and what they can do to change the future i'm very hopeful that's really amazing and they have a really amazing role model to look um to follow as well so you've done a great job leading uh this whole community it sounds like and well their moms and bruns and season and kate they're all powerhouse moms too so i think that's the thing we we all kind of, a lot of them, we all work together season. I mean, when we, we did Utah Rare a few years ago, and that brought all the nonprofits together, all the rare disease stakeholders for about four years. And, and again, that was 2014. And these kids and our, us moms have grown up together as advocates, as parents, and in this space. And Utah is very unique in that way that we've really stuck together and really um, made it a family here in Utah. So powerful. And yeah, I didn't mean to take away from the other um, <laughs> no, community no. as well. I definitely, not, not, not at all. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, you know, community effort for sure. So not one person can do all this. Um, yeah. So I appreciate that. And then I'm very interested in your uh, meetup February 28th at Recursions Pharmaceutical Worldwide. That's really interesting because I do think, and I think, you know, it's become very apparent that patients should be involved in the drug development process from the beginning and of course to the end um, in many different ways. So I don't know, can you share any additional tidbits or um, information that you gathered from that day or just in general about how pharma and biotech are working more with patients. Yeah, so we, and here in Utah, we even had um, Bio Utah a part of it, and the BioHive were there. I mean, we're the, the patients are at the center. I always say the patients are at the center of it all. And so when you bring them on as a seat at the table, right? It's it's benefiting everyone. And so the more and more that you have patient advocates working with as a representation, you know, sorry, pause. when you have patient advocates working for a pharmaceutical company or biotech, and they're there to be the patient advocate and work with the families, so many of the moms that have been running nonprofits have actually switched from nonprofit to go work in that space. And I'm so proud of them. And um, because they're there to, to help the patients work with the companies, bring it all together. And again, that's that collaboration piece, right? And if we all work together and, and it's come so far in the 10, 12, 13 years I've been to see how much the patient voice is at the center 
and how everyone on pharmaceutical biotech really knows it and listens. And for recursion, Chris Gibson, I mean, we were at the table with him and he had very few employees back in 2014. Now he's a worldwide headquarters and, you know, doing amazing things all these years. And at the center, he was listening to us from the beginning. And so that was why it was a full circle to go back to the rare disease community that, that was there with him when he started recursion. And I think, you know, so many, again, Anne brought Ethan's mom and works for in pharmaceutical. It's, it's wonderful because they've gone the journey. They've, they've been there for Ethan. They've seen the power of, of the drug that saved his life, that he does, you know, infusions every 14 days. I think it's every eight days now to stay alive. So we know the power and, and the hope that pharmaceutical and biotech give to our families. So to be able to work together, I think is, is so important and really incredible that that's what's happening. That's great to hear. I'm excited for the future as well. And I think there's so many more opportunities with uh, digital communities of people coming together and being more uh, easily connected to these companies as well. So what's on Exciting. the roadmap for RUN in 2023? Well, there's so much to do. And so it's trying, like I told you, there's so much to do every day. And I'm still a full-time mom and <laughs> I always say an unpaid Uber driver, right? <laughs> um, but but the roadmap for run, I mean, every day I wake up going, what am I going to do today to further from my family and the entire community? And so I'm really excited about the RDAC, as I mentioned. We've, we continually do that, that we have a stakeholder partnership work group, a resource communications work group that I'm on, a legislative work group. So, and they also have a data work group. So there's a lot to do with the RDAC on subgroups and a lot of meetings. And we're hoping to have a luncheon with the legislature um, as a meet and greet this fall so they get to know us better. And so our recommendations will be heard during the next legislation session next year. So that's always an ongoing. I'm very proud of being a patient advocacy advisor for the Rare X Global Genes, which has been founded by Nicole Boyce. And they're really active on their platform. And Global Genes is, you know, always active um, for rare disease communities and having events. So always the collaborations with them, I'm always excited about. And I'm really excited to be a board member of the Metrodora Institute Foundation. The Metrodora Institute just opened in Salt Lake City recently. They're focusing on autoimmune neuron access access disorders. And their founder is Dr. Laura Pace, James Hemp, and Fiji. Um, they are wonderful. And they are um, giving a lot of hope to the undiagnosed community that doesn't fit into the general health care system. And so they're kind of breaking all the rules and, um, and open and they're giving a lot of hope to the undiagnosed community. So excited to be a part of that. And also um, the Undiagnosed Disease Network International with uh, Bill Ball. Um, and Helene, they are active um, having events um, every quarter around the world. So I kind of um, haven't been able to travel to the events as, as much as I want to because they're, it's, it's really incredible that there is the Undiagnosed Network International because it's everyone. It grows, I think, in the beginning. It was a small group, but now it's so many people and it's touched everywhere around the world for undiagnosed diseases. You know, that's incredible. So to be a part of that, I feel very honored. And again, hopefully doing Runs MBA initiative, but there's a, every day there's new, new emails, right? There's new people reaching out. For, it's been very active, I think, coming out of COVID this fall and getting into the winter and spring. So every day I'm kind of surprised at what new collaboration presents itself. So kind of excited to see where things go. That's incredible. And I think that 
you know, this will continue to be a growing community for you and the rest of the patients and your children as well, who, um, you know, may continue on with this program and try to build it on their own. Um, so, you know, maybe, right. Who knows, who knows the future, but, uh, I yeah. just want to thank you, Gina, so much for sharing this and putting this together and helping us understand, first of all, what is undiagnosed diseases and what is undiagnosed rare disease day. Uh, again, for the folks who are listening, it's April 29th and officially recognized in the state of Utah. So um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share with the community? No, I just feel very blessed to be able to share our journey and continue to spread awareness for the undiagnosed community. I just, it's a very long road. Again, it's chronic, it's invisible. It's, it's at a cellular level. These families need you know, more help and clinical care. That's one thing I've been trying to preach is that there's a lot of funding for research, but the clinical care is lacking because there's a lot of physicians that are, it's hard to find that understand or have the time for complex medical care. So um, just kind of keep pushing forward and raising awareness and hoping for more action in the well, community let's talk, too. Let's talk a little more about the clinical care part. Cause yeah, you're right. There is like a subset of funding that goes to drug discovery and drug development and research. Um, and can you share more about you, what you're seeing on the clinical side before we wrap up <laughs> or, here? Because I just think yeah. it's an interesting yeah. point you made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the piece that's missing that is, you know, there isn't the clinical care support for undiagnosed families or very little. And, and that's partly because specialties focus on one body part, correct? So, and the word that's hard for me, the inter, inter sorry, pause, I have to practice it interdisciplinary okay the interdisciplinary you know strategy is what we need we need to be seen as a whole and not by individual specialties so i think that clinical care now the way that the healthcare system is set up is you see specialists and it's very rare for you to see you know multiple doctors to see the whole and metrodor institute is working on that the mayo clinic you know works on that the udni um you know the udn i'm sorry um, work on that as well but it's still um, on a day-to-day -day level, it isn't the normal. And, and for doctors to have the time to read the files, it's not the physician's fault. They admit that. And they're very open about it. it's just not realistic in the current medical system to care for complex medical children and adults. And that's where that piece of trying to change for clinical is much needed and i keep pushing and where's the funding for more clinical care interesting i got yeah. you so like more of a like a holistic medicine approach versus you know which um part of the hospital am i walking into today yeah i think it's and yes holistic too but i, I think for uh, for example i yeah, the autonomic system affects yeah for example the autonomic system is everything so you can go to your gi for the the motility issues but that doesn't help in the motility issues. There's a lot in your gut that might be coming from your brain. Your brain, for example, you know, for, for certain children, um, my children, it's the brain is controlling it, not just your GI. So then you need neurology, but then the skin is bad. So you need dermatology, you need rheumatology, and you can't get them all in the same room, right? So you go to this doctor. That's why the diagnostic odyssey is so long, because you're going to all these, and they're like, well, here's what I can do for that when you need them all in the room to say how are we going to view them as you know again precision medicine right every it's it's every individual and they need to be seen as a whole and i i think that's the problem with the medical system the way it's set up now and seeing the undiagnosed programs that institutions are setting up that is what they're doing they're bringing in the multiple physicians to look at the person as whole 
And so I think that's the way that it needs to be for more families before they're in this diagnostic odyssey that long, right? I think, hey, if there's three different systems that aren't working, then they need to get in the room. And that would be so much more helpful in clinical care. And it's hard to get that to happen right now. Correct. Got you. Okay. Makes total sense. Um, again, Gina, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And uh, happy Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day, everybody. <laughs> thank thank you. you. Thank, thank you for having me.